please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from Exodus 2, 1 through 22, and it's found on page 44 in your pew Bible, as well as on the screens in front of you. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river <clears throat> while her young while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. <clears throat> One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian, Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Roel, he said, How is this that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our, the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him and he may be, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershon, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is God's word. Invite you to keep your Bibles open as we continue our series through the book of Exodus this morning. And let's pray, ask God to meet us. Gracious Father, what a gift it is to know that when we open this book, you are speaking. We praise you that you are a God who makes yourself known. And we pray, Jesus, that you would show yourself to us this morning in your word, in this great ancient story of who you are and what you're doing. 
Lord, give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and hearts ready to be changed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. With all of the uh, sports activities happening these days, uh, uh, when the game is on the line, you know, you think about those situations where your team is down at the end. You know, it's fourth, fourth and goal, 12 seconds left. You're down by five or, or you know, it's the bottom of the ninth. You're down by three. The bases are loaded. Two outs. You know, when the game is literally on the line, you're not going to call in a no-name rookie off of the bench to make the critical play. Nobody does that. You know, when the game is on the line, you call in the big guns. You know, you're going to call Big Poppy or Gronkowski or someone. Someone known for showing up when it counts. Someone with the power and influence to make the big play, to deliver the team from the clutches of certain defeat and bring them to a glorious victory. And when you think about it, uh, you know, it's not just sports when we think that way. It's really any time we face a challenge in life. We want someone to come in and be the hero and save the day. You know, no one asks a a first-year med student to perform their heart transplant. We want the head of cardiology, you know, at Mass General or the Shapiro Center or something like that. That's who we want. Uh, No one assigns the multi-million dollar client to the intern. You you don't entrust your sale to that guy. Uh, No one wants the public defender if they find themselves in court. You know, we want a big-shot attorney, someone whose name strikes fear into the heart of prosecutors everywhere. When we find ourselves in trouble, we want a hero, a champion, someone with the power and influence to get things done. And those are the kinds of people that our culture celebrates, the movers and the shakers. And you can imagine, uh, when you think of the story of ancient Israel and the situation they find themselves in, that that's exactly what they were hoping for. Uh, They find themselves enslaved by a tyrant in Egypt. They need someone to deliver them, someone to defend them and take up their cause, someone who can leverage their power to put Pharaoh in his place. They need someone very different than the person they actually get, Moses. In our story uh, in Exodus 2, we meet uh, one of the main characters of the Old Testament, the main character of the next four books of the Bible, Moses, the servant of the Lord. And, uh, you know, Moses is a man who's celebrated uh, as a pillar of ancient Israel's history. He's the mediator through whom God makes his special covenant with his people. Like Moses is that guy. He's, you know, the guy who wrote most of Genesis through Deuteronomy. He's celebrated. And yet... His story actually starts out with suspense and suspicion, with anticipation followed by disappointment and landing in doubt. But that's if you allow yourself to kind of get caught up in the story of Moses. So often when we read stories in the Bible, especially stories that we're kind of familiar with, we kind of just 
plow through them because we already know what's going to happen and and we don't pay that careful attention to how the author's actually trying to tell the story and and how he's, uh, you know, uh, revealing his message through that story. And so when we read a biblical narrative like what we have in front of us, you have to apply what I call the cornflakes strategy. So several years ago, cornflakes cereal ran a uh, uh, ad campaign where their slogan was, taste them again for the first time. I don't know if anybody in here remembers that, but I remember seeing those commercials growing up. And that's what we have to think about when we come to a narrative in the Bible that we're really familiar with. You have to read it again for the first time. Pretend like you don't know what's going to happen next, which allows you to get caught up in the suspense and the drama of the story that's unfolding because it's through that story that God is making himself known to us. It's through the story. And so you've got to get caught up into the story. And this story starts off with incredible suspense. If you were with us last week when we looked at chapter 1, we met a new king uh, in Egypt who saw the fulfillment of God's plan and promises as a threat to his kingdom. And, and so he thought he could outsmart God and, and try and put a stop to the flourishing of Israel. And he pulled out all sorts of different tactics to do it, none of which ultimately worked. He tried to you know, uh, enslave them and, and force them into hard labor. And then second, he attempted to kill all of the male babies among the Hebrews. Um, but nothing worked. Twice we're told that Israel continued to multiply and grow strong. Because there is no opposition in heaven or on earth that can stop God from accomplishing his plan through his people. But Pharaoh has one more trick up his sleeve. Chapter 1 ended with Pharaoh commanding all of the people, all of his people, the Egyptians, that every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And it's on that note or or under that cloud that chapter 2 begins in the story that we have this morning, narrowing the focus from every son in Israel to a specific son and unfolding in two broad movements. First, from a death sentence to privilege, and then second, from privilege to obscurity. So look at me, uh, look with me at verse 1. And as we read Exodus 2, it starts out quite simple. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. It's a rather unremarkable beginning to the chapter. When you think about it, this is the kind of line that you might read in any biblical story. Boy meets girl. They fall in love, get married, have a baby. This is just kind of normal life. It's, it's remarkable because it's so unremarkable to read that here. But in the context of Israel's oppression, this very normal part of life is in reality a very powerful act of defiance. Life finds a way even under the thumb of Pharaoh. 
Even in the harshest conditions, God's plan for human flourishing finds a way to break through the surface. It's not unlike what's happening in some of the Syrian refugee camps in Greece right now. Uh, Several weeks ago, producers from the podcast This American Life, I don't know if you ever listened to that, it's interesting stories, but they spent time in five refugee camps in Greece, uh, some of which were impromptu, you know, thrown together at gas stations or rest stops, which all of a sudden becomes home to 2,000 people living in tents. And one of the things that struck them was how despite the suffering of, of their past and the recent tragedy of being displaced, how normal life still happened. You know, people fell in love, got married, had children in these refugee camps under these terrible conditions. Life found a way. And that's where the story starts. Here in Egypt, under the oppression of Pharaoh, life finds a way. A guy and a girl fall in love, get married, and have a baby. It's this simple, beautiful act of defiance. And yet, there's this ominous cloud hanging over it. One that's dark enough to suck every ounce of joy out of what should have been one of the happiest occasions of life. This baby is born under a death sentence. He is a son. And he's the son of two Levites. We're not told their names yet. uh, But we are told that they're Levites, a a tribe that's eventually known for uh, the priesthood, but who up to this point in the story is known mainly for the violent slaughter of all of the males in the city of Shechem back in Genesis 34 which is dangerously ironic when you think about the situation facing this family. Here's a, here's a couple whose tribe is known for the slaughter of innocent males, or at least males, whether they were innocent in Shechem or not. Uh, it's dangerously ironic. Is Levi now going to get what's coming to them with this son? What's going to happen? What happens is the love of a mother. Again, simple beauty of normal life operating in quiet defiance against Pharaoh. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. She knew what Pharaoh commanded. She knew what she was supposed to do and the risk for not doing it. And yet as soon as she laid eyes on this child, she knew that there was no way she could follow Pharaoh's command. She risked her life to protect her child and hide him from the Egyptians who had been ordered to seize him and kill him. I mean, it is almost impossible to think about what that would have felt like, you know, to bring a child into the world and knowing that there's a death sentence on your son. Uh, it's just, it's, it's hard to even go there. Um, it reminds me of, uh, of uh, what happened in... Um, the story of Cory Ten Boom uh, in World War II. Cory Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian whose family hid Jews in Holland during World War II. And you think about it, you know, babies are not quiet creatures. And, and so the, the anxiety and worry of, of if someone hears this child, that could be the end of their, of their life. And, and so it was... You know, uh, in the Ten Boom household, they had a hidden room, a secret room, where their Jewish guests fleeing from the Nazis would stay. 
And when the Gestapo raided their house one day, they were able to get all of the people into that room and get the door closed, and they couldn't find them. But Corey could hear the raspy breathing of one of the children who was sick on the other side of that wall. What if they hear? And she prayed in that moment, Lord Jesus, you have the power to heal. Heal Mary now. And by the time the door opened and the troops came in, she couldn't hear the baby anymore. God preserved the, the Jews that were hidden, even though Corey and her family were arrested. And so this anxiety, I mean, here, normal life, what ought to be, you know, it's the kind of stuff that we fill our Facebook feeds with, all of the pictures of our, of our baby, and it's just all of the joy is completely gone. This mother uh, risking her life to hide her son. But eventually there came a time when, when that was simply no longer possible. Having no other options, she finally, in a, in a sort of way, gave way to Pharaoh's decree, but with her own creative spin on it. In verse 3 we read, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. You cannot underestimate the role that the love of a mother plays in the deliverance of Israel and really God's whole plan of salvation for the world. A son born under a death sentence to a mother who refuses to give up hope. And so she, she concocts this strategy to try and preserve him a little bit longer. But ultimately now, it's completely out of her hands. But it's, it's interesting that in her act of love, preparing this little boat for her kid, you know, taking a basket and covering it with tar or pitch to make it watertight, she makes this little boat for him. Uh, even though God feels absent from this part of the story, you, you have this subtle echo of, I've heard that story before. The story when God commands Noah to cover the sides of the boat with pitch. And then you kind of realize that, that the word translated basket here in our story is the exact same word in Genesis 6 through 9 that's translated ark. In fact, that word is used nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's only used to describe Noah's boat and Moses' basket. She makes an ark for him. And it's this picture that even though it all looks hopeless, God is at work behind the scenes preserving this son. Which makes you kind of wonder, who's this child going to become? What is God going to do through this baby boy? And his mom apparently wants to know the answer to that question. She sends her daughter to go kind of follow and, and see what happens to him. And what happens is nothing short of miraculous. Almost hilarious when you consider the lengths to which Pharaoh has been going to try and bring about the end of the Hebrew people. So verse 5, again, there's a little bit of suspense here. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Of all of the people to discover Moses 
Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the king who wrote the death sentence, there's no way that this is going to be good. And yet, she opens the basket and life finds a way. The love of what becomes now a new mother triumphs over Pharaoh's plan. She saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity. One of the most beautiful verses, beautiful words in this story. She opened it. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. A woman under obligation, not just to the king, but to her father to to destroy the life of any Hebrew male child she finds. And instead, she adopts him into her home. She is moved by compassion, a love that triumphs not just for the baby, but for his family as well. And so, you know, the story just gets, you know, boldly ironic. Fair, uh, Moses' older sister, the baby's older sister, in a very bold move, stands there, speaks to the daughter of the king, a Hebrew slave speaking to the daughter of a king, offering to find a nurse for the baby from among the Hebrew people. Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go for it. She goes, gets the baby's actual mother, who then receives her child back for a time and gets paid by Pharaoh to raise the kid. I mean, it's hilarious. This son goes from a death sentence to privilege being raised in the very home of the man who sought his life. When the child grew up, verse 10, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The irony is so thick in this opening part of the story. So one author summarizes, Pharaoh's chosen instrument of destruction, the Nile, becomes the means for saving Moses. As in chapter 1, the daughters are allowed to live, and it's they who now proceed to thwart Pharaoh's plans. The mother saves Moses by following Pharaoh's orders with her own little twist, putting him in the river. A member of Pharaoh's own family undermines his policies, saving the very person who would lead Israel out of Egypt and destroy the dynasty. Egyptian royalty heeds a Hebrew girl's advice. The mother gets paid to do what she most wants to do out of Pharaoh's own budget. It's hilarious. It ought to be hilarious. It shows you how stupid it is for Pharaoh to think that he can thwart the plans of God. This is the loyal love of God. When everything looks like it's lost and God feels silent and distant, because God is a God of life, Life finds a way. He will be faithful to accomplish his plan and his promises. And it looks like this is now the hero through whom he's going to do that. We found the champion that Israel needs to, to kind of get out of Egypt. Who better to lead God's people to freedom and victory than this child Moses? He himself has experienced the kind of salvation that Israel needs, right? He's, he's gone from death sentence to privilege. He grows up in Pharaoh's own household. We've got a man on the inside 
trained in all of the wisdom of Egypt. He's going to have power and influence. He is perfectly positioned to lead a rebellion for God's people. Finally, the hero that we need, right? And yet, as the story moves forward, our expectations of Moses begin to erode along with Moses' credibility. Verse 11 introduces the second movement of the story from privilege to obscurity as Moses' life unravels. And with it, our confidence that that God has raised up his man. Uh, We fast forward, the story fast forward uh, goes to Moses' adulthood. We read this in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And and here's where the portrait of Moses begins to get a little fuzzy. On the one hand, he knows his heritage. Despite being raised as an Egyptian, he identifies with the Hebrew people. He even makes an effort to go out and look on their burdens, to see their suffering. And when he sees one of them being mistreated, he sides with the Israelite. He wants to bring justice, so much that he strikes down and kills the Egyptian slave master. Is Moses the deliverer that, that we're waiting for? And yet, there's this strong sense that that what Moses did there was actually wrong. The secretive nature of it. You know, he looks this way and that, and seeing no one, kills the guy, and then hides his body in the sand. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And moreover, though he identifies with the Israelites, he cannot relate to them. He has to go out of his palace and, and go out in order to look upon their sufferings because he does not share their sufferings. He is safely insulated from them. He's been shielded his whole life, raised in luxury and power and privilege, which you might think, well, that makes him the great guy to, you know, to save us, right? But his Hebrew uh, brothers and sisters didn't see it that way. Verse 13 tells us that the next day he went out again, and this time he sees two Hebrews fighting each other. And again, he's he's got this sense of justice. He, He speaks to the one who's in the wrong, saying, why do you strike your companion? Moses is trying to help. But his brothers don't see it that way. The man answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Who died and made you king? Do you mean to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. My little secret act of justice is is not so secret anymore. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. So in the course of two days, Moses goes, his, his story spirals from privilege into obscurity. He goes from trying to deliver one of his brothers to needing to be rescued himself. His life is now in danger, and he's been rejected 
by the people we thought he would save and the family he grew up with. His obscurity is reinforced by what happens when he arrives in Midian, which is a region northwest of Egypt. Verse 16 tells us that the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. And Moses stood up and saved them. He delivered them out of the hands of the shepherds and watered their flock. So again, it's like, okay, we're back. He's back, right? Here's our Savior. But his identity is drifting into obscurity. When the daughters explained to their father what happened, they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our flock. An Egyptian? Who is this Moses? Does he even know who he is anymore? And the answer we're left with as this story kind of comes to a close is that no, he has no clue who he is anymore. Moses goes from being born a Hebrew slave, raised Egyptian royalty, rejected by both of those people, and now resigns himself to live in obscurity, settling down with a new people in a new place, starting a family, Like, it's as if the story's just kind of done and it's going to move on and we'll have to find someone else. The story began with a son born under a death sentence who who became a son of privilege. It now ends announcing the birth of a new son whose name expresses Moses' new reality, Gershom, which means sojourner, wanderer. A man without a people and without a home. That's who Moses is. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And, you know, as those who are who are reading this story again for the first time. We're not sure what to make of Moses either at this point. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Is he really capable of of leading Israel to Safety and freedom? Is this really the man that God wants to use to deliver his people? Weak? Obscure? Defeated? Hiding? Where's the thunder? Where's the the charisma, the, the drive to get things done and be the hero God needs him to be? That's not the leader we're looking for. But one of the things that this story and all of its obscurity teaches us is that God often accomplishes his plan in surprising ways. Just because he doesn't work out his plan the way we think he should, doesn't mean he's not working. And if we think he's not working, unless he's doing things according to our expectations, we just might miss what he's doing and who he's doing it through. If we think that God only works through the extraordinary, we will miss how often he uses very ordinary means to accomplish his plans. You know, the simple defiance of two people falling in love, getting married, and having a baby. The love of a mother that does everything to protect her son, and God changes the world through him. 
You know, sometimes we think that unless I do something big and bold for God, God can't use me. And if God calls you to do something big and bold, you need to obey God and trust him. But, but sometimes, very often, God uses the ordinary to accomplish his plans. You know, getting married, having kids, going to work, loving your family, praying with your kids, inviting a friend to church teaching Sunday school. You know, most people have heard the name of D.L. Moody. He's a famous uh, evangelist of the 19th century, he preached the gospel to tens of thousands of people, started two schools here in Massachusetts and, and one in Chicago that is now Moody Bible Institute and, and Moody Church. And so most of us have heard Moody's name, but few people have heard the name of Edward Kimball. Kimball was a Sunday school teacher at a church here in Boston. Nobody has ever written a book about him. He doesn't have his own Wikipedia page. We don't know that much about his life. He taught Sunday school. We know that much. And one of his students was a young man named Dwight Moody, whom he visited one afternoon at the shoe store where he was working and had a conversation about what they'd been talking about And Moody gave his life to Christ. He taught Sunday school. That's not like the big, bold thing that we think God wants us to do. He taught Sunday school, and God changed the world. There is a quiet providence at work in the ordinary things of life. And we see that in this story. We also see that God works through unsuspecting, ordinary people. Moses wasn't the leader that Israel was looking for. He spent his first 40 years in luxury. He's not the leader we think he should be either, because he spends the next 40 in obscurity. But what we often forget is that God chooses the weak and obscure to accomplish his plans. That it's actually Moses's weakness and obscurity that equips him for the role that God is calling him to play. That God is preparing his servant, not by making him great, but by making him humble. Not by giving him power, but by making him dependent. Moses is an example of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in his presence. God often accomplishes his plans in surprising ways through surprising people so that we can see that it's God who does the work and deserves the glory, not us. God uses the unexpected. That was true of Moses. It's often true of us. And it was also true of Christ. It's interesting that uh, when Stephen gives his sermon in Acts 7, he draws a parallel between 
the rejection that Moses experienced because he didn't fit Israel's categories to the rejection that Christ experiences for the same reason. Just like Moses isn't the leader Israel expected, Jesus was not the king that Israel expected either. You know, for some of them, they wanted a champion who was going to stand up to Rome and throw off their oppression using violent means if necessary. And so when Jesus came along saying crazy things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, they didn't have a category for that. Others wanted a king that they could control, not someone that deserved their allegiance. And so when Jesus came along saying, I'm the son of man to whom all dominion and authority belongs, they killed him for that. And that's Stephen's point in Acts 7 in his sermon. He says this, chapter 7, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And it's this future prophet that Moses talked about that the people in Stephen's day looked at and said, no way, and rejected him. They they betrayed and murdered him, nailing him to a cross. They rejected Jesus just like their fathers had rejected Moses because he didn't fit their categories. And sometimes Jesus doesn't fit our categories either. We want a, we want a Savior who will rescue us from all of our problems, who will help us achieve our dreams and realize our full potential. A Savior who's always available to help, but doesn't ask too much from us in return. A Savior who will still let us be king. That's so often what we want. And when Jesus doesn't work that way, we, when he doesn't match our expectations, it's tempting to look for a different Savior or to just stop looking completely. But if Israel could miss what God was doing through Moses... It's very easy for us to miss what he's doing through Christ. The temptation here is not just to miss out on being used by God, but to miss the one God ultimately uses. The prophet like Moses, our true savior and king. Who would have thought that Israel could be delivered through an obscure shepherd who got himself kicked out of his family for murder and was rejected by his own people, disowned and resigned to live in obscurity for the rest of his life. Who would have thought God could use that guy to deliver his people? Who would have thought that the whole world could be delivered through an obscure carpenter raised in Nazareth, of all places, rejected by his people, and nailed to a cross. Winners don't get nailed to crosses. How could this be the guy? Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God often accomplishes his plan in surprising ways through surprising people. People like Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that though we don't often see you or recognize you at work, that you are faithful, that you are at work, that you will accomplish your plan for creation and fulfill all of your promises, and that you have proven it and done it through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for overlooking you when you are at work, for expecting and demanding you to work one way when you choose to work another. Use us. Use us, Lord, through the normal things of life to make a difference for your kingdom. Help us be faithful, godly, loving people. Bring the word of your gospel to bear on our lives that through us, your glory might be made known. Keep us dependent and humble and trusting in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.